0: Hey, I'm Sean Canungo. This is another episode of Dangerous Ideas. We break down concepts and frameworks that will change your life. Hey, my name is Sean Canugo. This is another episode of Dangerous Ideas. In this episode, what we do is we, in this podcast, what we do is we break down concepts and frameworks that will change your life, change your, change your career, change your business, but most importantly, change your life. And I want to remind you on this podcast, we say it's not an interview podcast. Okay, we're not interviewing people. We're not even introducing people. We're just, we're just saying their name and then getting to the ideas because that's what we do on this pod. But I have to give a small introduction to one of my favorite people on the planet. His name is Wang Yip. Now, I know we're not supposed to introduce anybody on the pod, but Wang Yip is uh, is actually somebody that I've started doing podcasts with. We actually had a podcast called "A Dip the Remix," um, and so he is the OG one of the one of my original collaborators when it comes to a podcast. He's a seven time um, author, um, just a brilliant mind. And in fact, if I think about dangerous ideas and the person that has the most dangerous ideas per Per sentence, it's Wang Yip Wang. Thank you so much for being on Dangerous Ideas.
1: Wow, that's quite a quite an intro. To hold live the up mic
0: to. up. Hold you gotta hold
1: quite up. quite an intro to live up to.
0: Sean. Well, listen, I, I I actually I'm trying to think about somebody that has more dangerous ideas than you and and and, and it's really, you, Sean. Well, no, I I actually I mean i have got the Dangerous Ideas
1: podcast. Right? I'm embarrassed because <laughs> I actually
0: think it's you. And the reason why I love chatting with you is because. Um, I don't think that there's another human on the planet that's able. Like your superpower is be the, the ability to distill all this information, uh, whether it's through books. I mean, you're a you're a rabid reader. Uh, is it rabid? I don't know. But sure, pr- yeah, pr- and uh, voracious reader. You you listen to everything, you read everything, and you, then you're able to take all those ideas and to distill it down to a point, to a, an idea, a concept, a framework. That will change someone's life. And you do that in your newsletters. You do that in your writing. Um, it's incredible. So I, I just want to give you your flowers here. Thank you. And yes. part of the inspiration of doing this Dangerous Ideas is, you know, things that we've been talking about throughout the years, which has have been Dangerous Ideas. And now here we are on, on video. I mean, it looks good.
1: well you look good well i I don't know about i don't know about me (laughs) no you look great um
0: i want i want to get into some of the dangerous ideas just to start sure um yeah and pick your brain on some of the dangerous ideas that you've been writing about for years and want to see why you think it's so dangerous so the first one that i want to bring up yeah is skipping the line yes now i'm gonna give you why i love the idea of skipping the line but okay. first i want to, i want you to describe to the off uh, to the audience what does skipping the line mean
1: yeah it's an idea from from james alter's book it's skip the line and you know he he talks about how there's this you know set path with everything that you do, you know. So let's just say, as an example, uh, investment banking. You know, you you go to school. Uh, maybe it's a bit. Uh, you know, you go to get a business degree. You need to get your MBA. You know, you need to major it or specialize in like financial, whatever, accounting. Um, you need to kind of go through the rounds, maybe do internships, things like that, and then you get into investment banking. Right, that's the kind of traditional routes. Now, James James Alter's point is you can skip the line with any sort of path. Um, you just have to kind of work hard enough. And the reason that he's trying to advocate and maybe why you love it so much is you don't have to follow the traditional path, yeah. right? You don't have to spend all that time. You can you can shortcut your way essentially um, into whatever career, whatever path you want, right? And so, you know, I mean, I, I, investment banking is maybe not the best example because I'm not an investment banker, but maybe instead of doing the traditional route you are the one raising funds, right? You go and talk to yep. you know your fellow classmates from school, and you say, "Hey, like I'm, I'm thinking about investment banking. I'm gonna, you know, whatever. I'm gonna do a hedge fund or do some algorithms or whatever." It, it,
0: is it right? is there an individual that you think that has skipped the line? Give me an example of somebody that maybe someone would know around how they would skip the and how they skip the line.
1: Yeah, I know this. Uh, I know this uh, really really interesting individual. Uh, used to be in management consulting, Um, you know, did a lot of different like speeches here and there, asked me for advice around how to get into professional speaking. I think, but I don't know for sure, because I didn't really track his career, but I I think he started doing a lot of free stuff at first, right, and just doing a lot of speaking, taking whatever opportunities there were. And then, you know, all of a sudden, it just kind of turned around and there he was, you know, he left management consulting, and, you know, be, became the hottest speaker really on the planet, right? I, I mean, I, I think, well, I think I you know who I'm talking about. Oh, I appreciate first, right?
0: the, I appreciate the yeah. kudos. No, I, I, uh, I, I appreciate If that's it. not
1: skipping the line, I mean, I, 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 I can't think of a better well,
0: example. I'll tell you, I, I did skip the line. Um, and, and because there is a traditional path to, to public speaking yes, yeah. and becoming a keynote speaker and to being, uh, you know, one of the book speakers in the world. I think there is a linear path to getting there. But the way that my skip the line, I think my skip the line was through content, was through mm-hmm. video content, mm-hmm. putting out video content. That's how I skipped the line. Like oh, I was able to um, create my own lane and I was able to, yeah, get get in there. So so I appreciate the flowers on that. To, to me, like I love the idea of skipping the line and I love that you, you've written about this a ton. And um, one of my favorite examples, is not a popular example, but I will... I will describe it as skip the line is like going to a club. Hmm. Imagine you're getting into a club. Yeah. You're lining up yeah. and there's a bouncer at the front. Yeah. Now most people can get through the line, you know, if they just wait their turn sure. and they'll get into yeah. the club. Yeah. But every club has a back door and there are certain people that are able to get through the back door because maybe they're, they're good looking. Maybe they're famous. Sure. Maybe they come up with, you know, a, some way of getting through the back door. To me, that's, part of skipping the line. Some people break down the door and they get to the DJ booth like right away. Mm -hmm. And they do that through really innovative ways. One of my favorite people to skip the line, he's not a popular person, but it's Jake Paul and Logan Paul when it comes to boxing. So you think about boxing. boxing. Boxing is a sport where you have to pay your dues. Boxing is a sport where you have to wait your turn. You have to fight a number of different individuals. You have to go through the amateur ranks. Then you get to the pro ranks. And then you can be at the main stage, like headliner, you uh, you know, in the arena, in the stadium. But what Jake Paul and Logan Paul did was they created their own through content, through video content, through by building their social media following, they were able to completely skip the line, barge through the door, get to the main stage uh, DJ booth, Mm -hmm. fight Floyd Mayweather, get some of the biggest boxing matches uh, that has happened over the years simply by skipping the line, and they did that through content. Such an amazing way of... An example of skipping the line that I love sort of to use. But um, I want to ask you, one of the things that James Altucher talks about and you've written about as well, which I love, which is the his advice against going against the 10,000-hour 10, realm. Mm-hmm. 10,000 hours is putting in your dues. 10,000 hours is like going through this linear route. Talk to me about what James Altucher talks about.
1: Yeah. So he talks about this intersection of of skills. So tending, putting 10,000 hours into, you know, let's say one field, one skill, that'll put you at the top of that field. But if you look at the intersection of multiple skills or multiple fields, you don't need to put in 10,000 hours in each field, mm. right? Instead, you can put in 1,000 hours, right? And, and you know, do the, you know, lots of mathematics, mathematics here, 80, 20, and all that kind of stuff. but. Um, what he's saying is you want to be the top 1% in two skills. You just need to put in 1,000 hours in each. Or if it's three or more skills, maybe it's 100 hours in each of those set of skills. So by kind of finding that intersection, finding your, your sweet spot of different skills, um, you don't need to put in that 10,000 hours.
0: So give me an example of somebody putting in, a thousand hours in something, one skill, and putting a thousand hours in another skill, combining those things together. I think you call it uh, the multiplier effect or multiplier skills. Um, give me an example of that.
1: Yeah, sure. So you know, let's just say, uh, and and actually, there's a there's another uh, idea that James talks about, which I really like, which is you can borrow hours from other things that you've worked on. Right. right. So. You know, let's just use management consulting as an example. Management consulting, we work on decks and reports and things like that. That is all translatable into content building, right? You could you could build content from that 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 set of skills. So you could take those hours from management consulting. You can put in a thousand hours, um, and then the other thousand hours it could come from, let's say, your immersion in culture in in entertainment. Maybe you spend I don't know a thousand hours analyzing Netflix movies for virality, yeah. right? So you could take those 1,000 hours, you could take your 1,000 hours for management consulting and building content, and you combine the two, and then you become, you know, number one speaker on plan or whatever it is, right? right. Uh, around edutainment or, or whatever, the, whatever the niche is. So uh, So you could take those 1,000 hours from each of those different areas and, again, combine those, and because you're at that intersection, other people can't really compete with you, right? Because they need to also put in the thousand hours in each of those different skills, right? Right. And, you know, if you want to, uh, of course, niche down and try to become, again, the top 1%, you just need to add a few more skills or a few more areas or topics.
0: And this is a way for you to skip the line. Absolutely, Is to create another tangential skill combine those things, and then you will help skip the line. So, love the idea of skipping the line because it's, I, I think it's a story of disruption, right? It's mm-hmm. its not going through the traditional route, so so I love that. Um,
1: and, you know, the other thing about yeah. skipping the line, I, I'll just add here, and what James points out as well, which I think is relevant here, is most people will take the traditional route and very few people will look for alternative ways to get around that, right? right? Like, if you want to be an investment banker, you're not going to you're not going to go out to other students and try to raise funds. Nobody does that. But because nobody does that, it gives you that, that really nice competitive advantage. But also, you know, nobody else is competing with you, right? right? Because you're finding creative ways around it. Right. So, you know, that's, that's another reason why you might want to skip the line. The, the,
0: the, the other thing that I think – so, so, this, is, this is a radical idea. This is why it's called Dangerous Ideas. Uh, I was li- recently listening to an interview with Mr. Beast. Okay. And Mr. Beast said, "There's this rule with ten thousand hours that everyone seems to follow." In fact, I think Malcolm Gladwell says, "I I didn't really I, I said ten thousand hours, but people like misinterpret yeah, 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 like, what that yeah, means, yeah, right?" Yeah. But Mr. Beast says you should spend ten thousand days at something. Mr. Beast is taking; he's already put in ten thousand hours to sure, be a sure. master at it. Yeah, you have to spend like decades. Uh, putting in the work to be a true master, which I really love. Mm-hmm. I also love the idea of taking beyond that, which is taking ten thousand experiments. Uh, so we're 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 talking about something even greater than ten thousand hours. But let me let me get your hot take on Mister Beast's ten thousand days at
1: something. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think i mean we could we could analyze mr beast for for days i'm sure but there's a lot of things that that mr beast does that are, that obviously add to his his popularity right you Continually invests in in himself, right? I think if you if you watch his first few videos, and I'm not sure if if you have, right? He's 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 talked about his his vision, right? He's talked about how, um, and I think in interviews as well, he's talked about how every single dollar or every single cent that he's earns from from his channel basically just reinvests into either new equipment or new skills or people or whatever, just makes it bigger and bigger and bigger. so you know, I think I think it's you know it's obviously yes, ten thousand days, great, right? I, and that's that's a great uh, let's say barometer of of mastery. But you also need these other things too, right? You need to continually reimburse. You need to you you can't just spend ten thousand hours playing one key on a piano and think yeah, I'm going exactly. to be a piano master, right? You need to get that feedback. You need to continually push yourself out, outside of your comfort zone, right? And so I think I think the idea behind the ten thousand days is. You know, give yourself enough time so that you can practice, you can get that feedback, you can work on it, you can continually improve, right? Um, There's a a book that I recently read. It's called Same as Ever by uh, Morgan Housel. Uh, He he wrote uh, The Psychology of Money. And in his book, one of his ideas um, is about how everything uh, good in life comes from compounding.
0: Mm. So you
1: need to give yourself enough time. Uh, and, right, and, uh, you know, one of the ideas I think we're going to hopefully talk about, the 1% better every day, right? Give yourself enough time for that 1% to compound into something amazing, right? Because yeah. 1% over one day, not a lot. 1% over 365 days, a lot, right? Well, it, so, it, it's
0: part of the reason why, you know, your newsletter, I know, LinkedIn, is called 1% better. Yeah. And yeah, w- was that the idea? Is that, you know, being 1% better every single day that's a compounding effect and, yes and, okay yes. got it yeah
1: yeah and I, you know i also wanted to be a little bit maybe conservative because i was thinking like you know everybody kind of maybe promises like 10 10% percent or 100 percent better or 10 times better or whatever 10x you know, better yeah whatever it is right and so i you know i i wanted to focus on basically really interesting really simple ideas that you can implement at work that you know and and everybody's busy right not everyone's going to go out and do all of these things all at once. But I wanted to kind of get that cadence in uh, going for everyone, uh, for, the, for my audience, get them to think about things a little bit differently and just do, you know, something small. Just yeah. Do something, you know, some small improvement, some small change at work to hopefully make it 1% better. And when they s- kind of see that and when that compounds, then they will see massive I, growth. You effect. know, I never
0: asked you because uh, I think Essential Habits, your sixth book, or fifth book, I think, or sixth book. It was your sixth book. It came out before Atomic Habits. And, right? Uh, it came out before Atomic. I th- I believe it did. I don't know.
1: I think, it, yeah, maybe around the same time. Are you? Are yeah. you
0: and Atomic Habits has been like the number one oh, book yeah, for the yeah, last yeah. time. And I feel like Essential Habits, I mean, I don't want to gas you up too much, but like, I think that's a better book. And it's actually, I think it's... 500 pages more than atomic habits and and um what what's your what's your opinion i I know this wasn't on like what's your opinion on topic habits and its comparison to essential habits
1: yeah well honestly i think they're they're different books and my book is is you know i i wrote it purposely to be more practical right to actually get into the weeds of like what do what do we need to do right every single day or month or whatever it is. And where, whereas Atomic Habits is more at a higher level, right? How yes. do you form really good habits? And how do you break bad habits, right? And so, uh, and the, of course, the, and the, the other major difference is James Clear has been writing for, for a very long time, right? And building up this email list. And I have not <laughs> been doing that. So um, when he went to sell this book, it became an instance, right, bestseller. Right, right. Because he's already had an audience. Right. Right. And so um, a lot of it is, yeah, you can have the best ideas in the world, but if you don't have the marketing and all that kind of stuff behind it, and no one knows about it, well, you know, it doesn't get anywhere. Right. right? So
0: yeah. well, we can talk about that later, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, okay, let's get, let's go to another dangerous idea. Sure, yeah. Which I which I've never heard of, but I I I absolutely agree in, which is the idea of practicing tragic optimism. Practicing tragic optimism can you tell the audience what 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 does that mean
1: sure yeah so tragic optimism it's it's a concept from brad stolberg's book master of change and he talks about how to embrace change because everything uh you know the the only common kind of denominator in life is change how do you embrace change when everything around you is changing but you're you're also changing yourself right and he looked at studies, he looked at research, and he found that tragic optimism—the um, people that practice tragic optimism—seem to have kind of the best outlook in life. So, uh, one of the examples that he gave was, and um, trying to like remember all the details. There's, um, I think, this gentleman named Jim James. He's a prisoner. Mail. He's a prisoner, prisoner of war. war. Yeah, I think in Vietnam, I think it was. And so uh, they were interviewing him after he had got out of uh, Vietnam. And they said, you know, like, um, you know, what, what was your outlook like in, 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 in prison, right? Like you're a prisoner of war. Were you optimistic that you were going to get out? Were you pessimistic? Yeah. Like, well, you know, what was that like? Right? Like, did it help that other prisoners, you know, and there was other prisoners of war as well. And he was, you know, asking, uh, J- James, you know, other prisoners, you know, they were optimistic, you know, what happened to them. And he said that, um, the prisoners that basically lost hope first were the ones that were optimistic because they were they were basically.
0: Let, kind of... let, let me remind what he said. The optimistic people, they didn't survive.
1: Yeah, they they lost hope. The reason is because they were optimistic that they would get out by sooner Christmas, right. By Thanksgiving, right? They had these dates in mind. They were like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get out. Everything's gonna be great. And then when that didn't happen. Right? It continually didn't happen that they didn't get out. They started to lose that hope because they were so optimistic. So, James uh, at Stockdale, instead, he said, you know, actually, the people that were optimistic, and you can't just be completely negative, you're optimistic that you're going to get out, but you're also realistic about what that chance looks like, right? And so that's tragic optimism, which is, yes, being positive, but at the same time, being realistic, being feasible about. What this actually means? I, right? like, I
0: absolutely love this because I've been I've been going off about this on our pods. Um, I think the two constants in the pod is number one. I think Mr. Beast has dropped in every episode. Sure. Okay. <laughs> number two. Uh, <laughs> We've been talking about how we need to embrace hard things. We yes. need to, we've lost this ability to struggle, to do difficult things. And the reason why I love this dangerous idea around practicing tragic optimism, it's recognizing that the path is going to be hard. Yes. And that you are going to struggle, but still being optimistic going through the struggle. It's like going through the darkness, knowing that it's hard, but just like, knowing that it's going to be okay but just knowing that it's going to be hard yeah and I, I and you know when you wrote this i was trying to think about other parts of my life that are like i know it's going to be hard mm-hmm. but i'm going to enjoy it which is number one i, I think about my kids right sure, having yeah. kids um as you know like it's like you know you know it's going to be hard but you're just – you're happy to be with them. You, you, you know it, everything's going to go well, but you, there's going to be dents around, you, you know, sure, through the road. Yeah, yeah. Same thing with working out. You know, every time I go to a workout, I'm like, yeah. damn, this is going to be hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you enjoy the process and you're, you're optimistic around the outcomes out of it. So are there any parts of your life where you're thinking where, – where you've practiced tragic optimism?
1: Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I mean, one thing that really immediately comes up to mind is is my career. You know, I, I, a lot of the time... <laughs> right? I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. No, I, this is good. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I think about a lot of the times, like, hey, like, and and <laughs> you know, your last podcast, you talked about status, right? And yes. like getting getting kind of those fancy titles. Like, I mean, I don't I don't really care about that kind of stuff. But then everybody kind of gets into that comparison, right? Yeah. Like oh, like, uh, I remember this at, at uh, Deloitte. I'm not going to name any names, but I remember different individuals actually actually coming to me and going um, and actually talking about you, Sean, um, but other people as well. And they're, they're saying things like, oh, Sean's like only whatever, you know, he's only 30, 32 years old and he's a senior manager already or something like that. Like, and, you know, and promotions would come up and people would go, oh, this guy got promoted, but, you know, I didn't get promoted and I'm older than him and I've got more experience. And so you get into these comparisons, and so, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I have this, the same trap. I'm in, in I, that same trap. I yeah. was in the trap, too. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think once you're in the bubble, you get into that trap. Yeah, yeah. You and, just but, can't but, help. Yeah. But, but tell me, but, but what about the tragic optimism? What, what, so why are you mentioning this idea of status with tragic optimism? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, so, you know, what I'm thinking about now is, you know, I'm being realistic, right? And so optimistically, you know, should I be in a farther spot? Maybe, you know, I, I could have. Pointed out several things in my life, in my past, that I could have been, you know, more aggressive on or negotiated harder or whatever. But I'm also thinking, like, hey, like, yeah, work is not that terrible. And <laughs> but you know, I also have the the freedom and the work, the life-work balance to to be with my son, to be with my wife as well, and be with family. And you know, being realistic about where I'm going to end up, like, am I actually going to end up as a CEO somewhere? I mean, yeah, it could still happen, but realistically, probably not at this point in my career. Um, so, yeah, just being realistic about all these things, right? Being realistic about, like, where's your career, uh, where your career should be and where your career is right now, right? And so that's kind of what I'm trying to grapple with right now. Is, okay. You know, should I be farther in my life? Possibly, but, you know, am I pretty but, far already?
0: But but but, can I just push back on that? Sure, sure, yeah, please. Does it? Please doesn't everybody say that because they're comparing themselves to others? Doesn't, isn't everyone saying, oh man, like I'm uh, 24 years old, like I, how come I don't have a boat yet? Like mm. I don't have a, do you, don't aren't we, what are you compare, you're saying like I'm not farther along and yeah, yeah, yeah. I, know, I know everybody says that. Yeah, yeah. But are you comparing that to something else that you've seen
1: or is that like internal? I don't know. Yeah, it's a, it's a combination of both, I would say, right? Okay. Because, you know, a lot of the times internally you can you can kind of I mean, I'm an ambitious person by nature, so yep. I think that, of course. But also, you don't have those uh, guideposts, right? And so y- you don't really know, like, at the at, and everybody's situation is obviously different, right? Um, at my point in my career, with my experience, with my skills, um, you can't help but kind of go, okay, well, who else kind of has a similar skill set, similar experience? And where are they in their life, right? And oh, they're they're way farther ahead, and so I sh- I feel like I should be farther ahead, right? Or you, you, I don't know, you compare yourself to someone that maybe has less skills or less experience than you have, and they're farther ahead, and you go, well, why am I not farther ahead, right? And so, I mean, I have I have a both, yeah, I have a bit of both, right? I have this internal push to do better, of course, uh, which I think is is healthy, right? Yep. But at the same time, I also have this external kind of. Hey, I'll and maybe look at that's other something people. that
0: we can't escape as human beings sure, yeah, because yeah. we're just surrounded by things and people around us, right? And maybe that's something that we can't escape.
1: Yeah, you know, I don't think, you can, you know, maybe you can't escape it. I, I, I don't know. I, I can't really say. But, you know, what, what I think is it can be healthy or unhealthy, right? If you have this obsession over it, if you feel like you need to sacrifice different things, your, your life balance, your family, whatever it is, uh, your relationships, that's not healthy, Right. But using it as a as a guidepost, I think right. can be a good okay. way of going, hey, you know, maybe I, I should be farther in my life, or maybe I should negotiate harder or, or be a little bit more aggressive. Okay. So okay.
0: No, yeah. I, and that's that's a balanced response. Yeah. Um, you know, on this note on status, one of the things that you write write about is the idea of identity shifting at work. Identity shifting at work. I love this concept. I think uh, I think Brad Stolberg Stolberg. I think he writes about it in Master of Change. Yes. I haven't read Master of Change. That's okay. But yeah. but but, but yeah. uh, actually, he has an amazing story in that book about um, a speed space, a speed skater, which is probably my favorite story in the in the world. Just to summarize, is that this speed skater, I think from Norway, he became like the fastest skater in his particular race. And the ra- the way that he did that in the Olympics is not by training harder, but by like going for beers with his friends at night, or you know, just getting away from this grind and the hustle. And it was the idea that once he stepped away from his identity of becoming like the greatest speed skate skater, it allowed him to adopt different identities and allowed him to like, you know, excel in his. I think I, I gotta. Yeah, I so, got, yeah. So this long it, list. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So 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 you write about. This, and this, it might be separate, but you write about the idea of identity um, shifting at work what, what, what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I mean, you actually talked about this on the last on uh, the last episode about you know shifting from a keynote speaker to you know being a podcaster, an author, a yeah um, consultant, whatever a founder so you know at work. You know, we all have these identities, right? And we attach these identities to sometimes our titles, sometimes the things that we do at work. You know, I'm a project manager or whatever, or I'm a founder or CEO. And um, and like you said, you know, it's devastating when you lose that that status, when you lose that title. And so this idea of shifting your identity at work is is interesting to me because it, it means that you're not just you know, a, a project manager or a CEO, right? Yeah. You're also you're also a father. Maybe you're also a podcaster. Maybe you're also, uh, you know, a marathon runner, whatever it is, right? And so when you have these multiple identities, you can sort of shift uh, your identities as as needed so that, you know, when kind of one identity is maybe... Sunsetting. Yeah, sunsetting or, or, or yeah, failing or, or, you know, you're moving out of it into something else. It's not like your whole identity kind totally. of crumbles because, oh, I... I used to be CEO and now I'm, you know, whatever it is. Now I'm just a father, right? And, or, you know, I'm not saying that being a father isn't, isn't worthwhile, <laughs> right? But, you know, yeah, so, yeah. you know, some people kind of do that, right? They 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 have this whole, uh, I guess, uh, value attached to their, their identity. And then when that identity goes away, uh, they just, they lose meaning, right? They lose this purpose in life. So, you know, having these multiple identities really helps you transition with different changes that happen in your life.
0: So you're, you're, you, you are, advocating for people to be uh schizophrenic or to be you know bipolar in a sense because by by have i i agree with it but just having these different identities so that you can you can shift when when something is sunsetting
1: yeah i think i think it's it's uh i think it's about I mean, schizophrenic might, might be like more, more extreme. I, what I'm, I think what Brad is trying to say and what I'm trying to advocate for, I think is it's okay to have different things, right. And not attach your whole identity to kind of one title or one job or what, or one role or whatever, right. Um, do different things, explore where your passions are and, and, you know, master that craft and, and, and and go and do that thing, do, do the best you can, and um, and have these multiple identities that you identify with that you can then transition to if you need to yeah. during change, right?
0: And, and I love this idea because I believe that the reason why it's important to create different identities is to avoid the status trap, mm-hmm. right? Because as I mentioned in the last podcast, if you were able to listen to it um, or a couple podcasts ago, uh, what I talked about is that as human beings, the thing that we hate the most more than death itself is to move back in status, mm. to, to lose your status, like to go from number one to number two is what we fear the most. And so the reason why practicing different identities is your ability to actually go down in status, like mm. practicing the ability to to, to go down in status is actually a superpower because it allows you to be okay with other people looking at you at, as not as the top dog in your particular field. Um, so, so really
1: important. Okay, yeah. So here's a dangerous idea, okay, okay for you. Every single year, do something completely new. Mm. Become a beginner, right? Yep. Get that beginner's mindset. Love that. Because that beginner's mindset will help you in other, other fields, Right.
0: Listen, we're coming up to 2024. That might be the most dangerous idea. Maybe. Bet. And I love that. And, I, and I've been trying to do that as well, which is trying something fundamentally new. Like for mm. me, the book was new. The mm-hmm, mm-hmm. launch of special was new. Uh, we, we're going to be delving into more like the entertainment uh, realm uh, uh, you know, next year. So like just trying something new so that. Your identity shifts to, to zero. You're literally at zero. You're like, okay, I'm like a beginner at this. Yes. How do I solve yes. this problem to yeah. get to 100? Yeah. So I love that idea. Yeah. Um, okay, let's get to the next dangerous idea. Love this idea, which is the pre-mortem. Hmm. The pre-mortem. Now, we all know what a post-mortem is. Sure. Yeah. When something, when you're done something, you. Figure out what went well, what went wrong. You discuss as a team. Hopefully you learn something about it. So on the next project, the next idea, next thing, that you don't repeat the same failures that you had in the last project. But what's a pre-mortem?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's where you basically do all the things in the post-mortem, but before that that project or that, that activity has happened, right? And the the value of the exercise comes from, obviously... <laughs> Uh, the pre-mortem, you can do something about it, yep. right? Whereas the postmortem, you know, if someone's died and you th- and you said, oh, you know, they probably should have got whatever the medicine earlier, uh, you can't do anything about it. So the premortem is a is a is a fantastic exercise. I mean, I use it mostly on projects, but I mean, you can apply it to your, to every endeavor that you take on in your career, your personal life. You just have to ask yourself, sort of Murphy's law, like what is going to go wrong and what can I do about it now. So that I can prevent or mitigate or you know try to to uh, you know reduce the damage yeah. that's going to happen, right? And so when you do that exercise, you do that exercise in a, in a sort of safe environment as well, which is which is really interesting, right? Because you know post mortem, if the project's completely gone off the rails, basically you're looking for people to blame, right? Mm-hmm. In, in a corporate environment, mm-hmm. so people aren't going to be upfront about oh I made this mistake or oh, it was my responsibility to do X Y Z whatever. A pre-mortem, nothing has happened yet, right? And so people generally feel safer to kind of go, you know, hey, this might happen or like I see this being a risk. It's not something that has happened. It's not something that you need to take responsibility for, but it's something that you can address and identify early on so you can figure out what to do later. Love this idea
0: of pre-mortem. I think you mentioned Morgan Housel. I believe in his new book, what he does mention is that um, risk is when you've actually thought of everything You've crossed your T's. you dotted your I's. Risk is everything that happens after you've thought of everything. Yeah. That's what risk really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a premortem is essentially that. Yeah. Premortem is figuring out, okay, you've thought of everything. Now the real risk is the things that you didn't actually talk about. Yeah. So I love this idea of a premortem. And I think we should do a premortem not not only at work, not only in business, but we should do a premortem before you get married – Oh yeah! Before you have a trip, before you uh, you know uh, have a, a game, you should do a pre mortem. You talk to your you talk to your potential partner, your wife, your husband, whoever. Be like, hey, what's everything that could go wrong? Like, well, your mother in law, your mother in law could be you know a bitch. Your, uh, you know you might spend too much money on this. Um, it's a great idea, pre mortem to everything. Yeah. How is something going to go wrong with everything?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I I don't know if I would put it as a premortem, but you could you could talk about for like let's just use marriage as an example. Like, uh, what are you going to be like at you know in the in the worst scenario, right? In the in the worst case scenario, right? right? In terms of like you're you're hungry, you're angry, something's happened at work. What are you going to be like, right? And talking about those things ahead of time in a safe environment. So that when you go to those situations, you know exactly what to do, right? Like you know if, if your your partner's not feeling well, well, you've talked about it ahead of time about how you can like what you can do or what you shouldn't do in order to make her feel better, right, or make your partner feel better. so
0: you know I and I think one of the beautiful things about being a pre-mortem, doing a pre-mortem is that actually it might it might lower your expectations. Because you're already you're already assessing sort of those risks, mm. so that when something does happen that's unexpected, you're like, "Wow, this is, this is way better than I ever imagined," which is a be- which is what innovation is about. It's like innovation is not about what if you know what if because every, people don't want to innovate because they always ask the question, "What if this doesn't work out?" Mm. But the, I think the question that we should be asking is what if this works out way better than we ever imagined? Yes. And I think one yes. of the premortems is actually keeping your expectations low. So when that does happen, you're like pleasantly surprised.
1: Risk is often seen as something very negative, but there are positive risks as, you, as you've pointed out, right? Yeah. There are things where something has happened and actually turns out better than you expected, right? Love that. Um, yeah. I, and I, I'm surprised that people <laughs> uh, ask about innovation and risk. And of, of course, there's a tie in there, right? But- I mean, my stance has always been and the way that I've kind of thought about, you know, writing and my career and things like that is if I'm continually learning, if I'm continually building on my experience, like I'll never lose. Okay. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Because uh, you also talk about having an
0: anti-fragile career. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's uh, Nassim Taleb who talked about anti-fragile, one of the most popular books of all time. What? Do you mean by an anti-fragile career, and maybe that's what you're talking about—is like perpetually learning?
1: Tell me what it means. Yeah, let's. Well, I mean, let's talk about and and maybe let's define what anti-fragile means first. So, in his book, anti-fragile, Nassim Taleb talks about robustness. So, if something is robust, it means like it can't really—it's you know—it's resisting and it keeps its shape and things like that. And then he asks the question: What is the opposite of robust. Um, and the opposite of robust is, uh, I think it's fragility. And then he and then he asks the uh, subsequent question, what is the opposite of fragility? It's not necessarily robustness, because robustness is the resistance, right, of an object. Actually, the opposite of fragility is anti-fragility, which is something breaks, but actually becomes stronger when it then reforms, mm-hmm. right? And so, the anti-fragile career, what it means is, and I'll just... I'll uh, share the story of uh, actually a story from his book about two workers. One is a knowledge worker and the other is a taxi driver. So the knowledge worker has a stable career. They get a paycheck every two weeks. They get benefits, you know, all that stuff. Things kind of move along for the knowledge worker. Everything's great. The taxi driver sometimes has fares. Sometimes it's busy, right? You know, Oilers are playing. Lots of people go into the airport. Lots of tourists coming in. And then there are times where it's, not that busy, right? People aren't going to do keynote speeches and things like that at the airport, whatever. So they're not booking a lot of uh, a, a lot of taxi rides. So, you know, their, their monthly income, if you kind of graft it out, the knowledge worker is pretty stable, and then the taxi driver's kind of peaks and valleys, right? Some months super busy, other months not that busy. At the end of the year, though, they both earn, let's just say, $50,000, right? Both of them uh, take away $50,000 in annual salary. Now, for the knowledge worker, if that individual gets fired, let go, at some, you know, it could be any reason, right? Like these days, you, you can have any reason why yeah, you're gonna get let go. Uh, it could be economy, it could be whatever, COVID. This knowledge worker gets let go, they don't have the skills to handle those valleys, right? Because they've, they've kind of used to, they're getting used to this paycheck, right? Uh, the taxi driver, though, He goes through a couple months of drought of of not getting fares. It's okay. He's already been through that kind of stuff, right? So the taxi driver's career is anti-fragile because he can survive these kind of big um, collapses in whatever in in his career. Whereas the knowledge worker, his career is more fragile because he gets let go. He needs to go back to applying to jobs. Maybe he needs to go back to school. Maybe he doesn't get back the same job that he got, right, that he had uh, before. So... Um, and this is all leading to this anti-fragile career, <laughs> so right? A little until bit until Uber uh, comes and then yeah, yeah. It disrupts the taxi driver. No, yeah. So uh, the, yeah. So yeah. So there's a little bit longer. So my point is, and what I write about is, how do you develop an anti-fragile yes. career? How do you develop a career where sometimes change happens, right? You can't control it. Yeah. Sometimes you get let go, and you, you you have no control over it, right? So how do you make sure that your career is anti-fragile in the sense that if you get let go, if you had to change your income, whatever, change your job, you still survive? And so one of the things that I write about is continually learning, continually developing your skills, right? And making sure that whatever you're doing, you know, whatever project, activity, role you're taking on, you're learning something new, you're developing connections with a network, uh, a new network, whatever, uh, and you're just like building out that that. Personal capital right that career capital that you have so that if something happens to you you can rely on yeah. that career capital to kind of keep you going right so so I love the idea of anti-fragile
0: uh, anti-fragile career I've never heard somebody you know speak about it in that way um, I believe that one of the best ways of creating correct me if I'm wrong sure um, because the first time I'm hearing about this idea of anti-fragile Career, that's why it's a dangerous idea. I believe that by developing your own brand equity, whether it's through creating your own IP, building your relationships, putting putting on content in the world, is the absolute best way of creating an anti-fragile career. Because by building brand equity, you're not beholden to the you know a, a particular industry a boss uh, organization you're building your own ip and your own brand equity so no matter where you go you will always be relevant i'll give you an example like uh, sure i remember when we were at the firm there was a partner that was let go um that i was close with and he would built his entire like knowledge base his entire mm. career around, around a particular field mm. And when he was let go on the street, I thought he would have picked something up right away because at the firm, he was known in a particular field. Sure, yeah. But when he was on the street, people did not know him. Mm. And that was a click for me to be like, Mm. oh, wait, listen, the broader market does not know who he is because he did not build his own brand equity. He gave all his brand equity to the firm. Mm. People didn't know who he was. They knew what what the firm was. And so that was a light bulb for me to be like, wait, the safest job that you can build in the world, the most anti-fragile thing that you can do, is to build your own brand equity. Now, am I am I conflating the terms, or is this does this is this part of your thesis?
1: No, no, definitely part of the thesis. Right? Is uh, yeah, the building your brand equity. I mean, I I I would agree. I think uh, you know. Building your own IP, building your own skills, your content. Like, all that stuff is stuff that no one can take away from you, right? And that's really what I think the anti-fragile career is, right? Is trying to build in things that nobody can take away from you, yeah. right? Because... Like, for example, you're writing, right? Yeah. You know, writing seven books,
0: writing consistently uh, over time. Like, that's not beholden to any organization. That That's you at the end of the day. So... No matter what happens, you have a following. You have a a brand that you've built around your writing and your public speaking skills. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's in a sense created yourself. A, you know, an anti-fragile career. Yeah. Would you say that you have an anti-fragile career?
1: Yeah. I. I mean, I think I think there's a few more things that I would do to build. Uh, an even more anti-fragile career, but yeah, it's getting, it's getting it's compounding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're yeah. all yeah. compounding.
0: Yeah. Now, th- this leads me to my, 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 the, one of the most dangerous ideas ever set on the pond. Okay. Pod, which is the Wang Yip effect. Okay. The Wang Yip effect. Yes,
1: I, I saw this, I okay. saw this in our email conversations, yeah. Yeah, but I yeah, actually yeah. don't
0: know what this is. Yeah. The Wang Yip effect is, uh, putting in the work every single day, to be known as prolific. Being prolific. Is something that I. Aspire to. What many people aspire to. But very few people. Can, can call themselves prolific. Prolific. Is someone. That no matter what. They put in the work. Hmm. And they show up. And they ship. Yeah, I swear to God. That. Especially in the world of content creation, very few people have the Wang Yip effect, which is showing up every single day. I, I, I think I, – when I think of Prolific, I think of you. I think of Seth Godin, who writes every single day as a blog. Yep. Um, and I don't know. Maybe I think of uh, Jason Calacanis, who's a great podcaster, This Week in Startups, producing pods every single day for All In for This Week in mm. Startups very very difficult to do Mm. what is the secret to being prolific what is the secret to being prolific (laughs) what is the secret because you have not taken a sick day you have not taken a sick month a sick day you've always put in the work how how everyone
1: wants to know the way i don't know there there isn't a secret i don't think there's there's no shortcut to hard work right Mm. Like you got it, you got to put in the work. If you know that there is no shortcut, and for me, I, I recognized that early on. There's no shortcut to like great writing. You just you got to write, right? You right. can't be a great singer without singing. You can't be a great speaker without speaking, right? <laughs> so you got to put in the work. And so if you need to put in the ten thousand hours, ten thousand experiments, ten thousand days, right? Start right away. It's not just work though. It no. cannot be work. There's
0: a what lot is it, of people then? that are hardworking. <laughs> I don't
1: know. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to figure out why you're so prolific. I think, so when you get into this, so, it's, so this is really interesting. When I first started out, though, trying to be prolific, which I, I would argue that I'm not, but uh, no, no, no. putting in the work every yeah. day, yeah. you know, uh, it's hard. You get, like, for writers, there's this idea called writer's block. You know, I'd get blocked all the time right? But when you put in the work every single day, when you show up at your desk, so, you know, I think the fortunes, fate, whatever you want to call it, they'd smile upon you. They recognize, okay, yes, like, you know, Wang shows up every single day, like we need to reward him with an idea or with a, a concept or with something, right? And so you you when you put in the work luck seems to just favor you, mm. right? You just, you seem to have all the luck in the world because you've put in the work. If you don't put in any work, I mean, you could still get lucky, but your luck surface area is not as 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 big, right? So yeah, you could, you just gotta put in the work. But you have to also, like, you have to also love
0: what you are doing. Like, to be a prolific writer, you have
1: to love it, no? I think you you have to love it or you have to, Uh, love some aspect of it, right? And focus on that. Like what I love, I mean, I I like reading. I don't love it because it's like a hard activity that I have to kind of do. But what I do love is sharing that knowledge, right? In order to get to that point of sharing the knowledge, I mean, I obviously have to get through those, right? Reading and writing and all that kind of stuff. Do
0: you love sharing or do you love writing more?
1: I love sharing more.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You love sharing the ideas out.
1: I do. Yeah. And okay. Yeah, yeah. Writing is tough. <laughs> you know, <laughs> of course. You know this. Yeah, writing's tough. I could write forever. I could edit forever, and still not have the perfect article. But of course, you, you've got a deadline. You got to. You got to ship. Nothing. Nothing happens until you actually ship it. What, right? Where is so. dopamine coming from? You is it?
0: Is it the the comments? The 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 love of seeing your share. Is it hitting the publish button? I'm trying to figure out how do I become more prolific. So I'm mm. trying to get where. Where should I? Where can I get more of that dopamine?
1: Yeah, I think I think it's it's a, two things. So it's one is it's it's that sharing. So when I hit the publish button, I feel I feel good about myself. Comments and things like that. That that's all external. Like I can't control any of that stuff, right? And so attaching. So I learned early on attaching kind of my identity or my, my popularity or my status with likes and comments is not healthy because then you're always just chasing for things. Right. And so I want to write timeless content. I want to write stuff that's built for me. Right. And that's kind of where the dopamine hit is, right. That second part is it's, it's something for me, right. Something for my future self. If it doesn't benefit anyone else except me, I'm still happy. right? Right. And so yeah, so I go through this process of writing. I go through this process of learning, sharing what I've learned. But really, it's it's about learning for myself, right? And trying to absorb this stuff from the books and, and, it, and, and trying and, to implement it. And at the end of the day, it's being, going back to what,
0: you know, we talked about being 1% better. It, it day, this yeah. allows
1: you to be 1% better. Yeah, yeah. It's just thinking about these ideas, reflecting on them, sharing them. Uh, yeah and if, if other people get it get something out of it that's great but really it's it's for me right uh, yeah yeah. Um, on our
0: last pod I was talking to Navin uh, my friend He, I, I asked him uh, what his top five like content recommendations are top five books I think it was top three top five but okay. you're such a voracious reader you read like a hundred books a year give me the, give me your top five books that you can recommend to the audience um, in terms of being better
1: being one percent better other than essential habits, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, the, it's a little bit diff- uh, difficult because usually when I'm recommending books, uh, people will have something in mind. So, um, I mean, I, I would just say that my favorite books are um, I, I like Choose Yourself from James sure. James yeah, he's the one that, and that book was the one that really set me on the path to like doing this this daily practice uh, of health and and wealth and and you know wisdom and things like that. Choose Yourself is great. Uh, the Practice by Seth Godin. Seth Godin. Amazing, yeah, amazing book. I mean, that book is really, you know, it it, it talks to me, at least, about this idea of putting in the work, right? Yeah. Doing it every single day. Crazy, uh, because we interviewed Seth Godin together. We did, we did, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and Seth Godin's amazing, uh, obviously uh, does tons and tons of things. Yeah, so The Practice, Choose Yourself. And yeah, you know, I... I, I think about, uh, you know, just some books, you know, so have you heard of the Lindy effect? Yes, you heard of, of Yeah, so um, books that are, are things that are popular for X number of years are still popular. Yes. X more so you're number about the of years. <laughs> yeah. The, ba- the Bible is the most Lindy book on the planet. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, no, I'm talking about some really, really classical books, you know, Seven, uh, seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yes. Stephen Covey, right? Um, I like to go back to that book, you know, even though wow. I know the seven habits, even though I try to practice, of course, the seven habits, I still go back to the book, just because every time you reread a book, you get something new out of yeah. it, right? And so I, I try to reread the book every, every couple of months just to make sure that I'm getting kind of the most out of the book, right? You, you're spending, you know, 20 totally. bucks on a book. Totally. So you might as well get yeah. the full value out of the book, right? So, yeah. Uh,
0: great recommendations, fantastic great recommendations. Um, Listen, I, I think the last question I have for you, because we're coming up with time here, sure, is um, any advice that you can give for me. You, you, you've, uh, you know, we've worked together at Deloitte for many years, co coll- collaborators on on podcasts. Uh, now we see each other because our kids are in the same uh, uh, daycare. Yeah, yeah. Give me some advice that I can take into twenty twenty four.
1: I don't know if I can give you any advice. I mean, like I said, like. With the book recommendations, people usually have things like: Is there a specific area that you'd like me to comment on?
0: Um, because you're such a voracious reader, I, I mean, I think I'm 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 always trying to get better. But to me, it's like, how do I how do I how do I be more? Um, how do I take even bigger risks? Like to me, the bold ones was about stepping into the unknown. And just doing that um, with fear, like it's actually, it's about taking a different path. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily like leaping, right? It's okay. not necessarily about like, you know, just like being courageous at the end of the day. That's not what boldness is all about. But maybe maybe the next book will be about courageous. But I have to feel that to okay. me, I the boldness of but doing something different. Give me something about courage.
1: Well. The thing is, I think you're in a really good spot, Sean. I mean, obviously, you're a hot speaker. You got this, like, stable kind of base, right? You got you got a nice family. Uh, Minivan. Got amazing studio. Yeah, you got, you got the Sienna and the Highlander. Uh, so, you know, you got the stable base. And you can take a bigger risk if you wanted to, right? Um, I think most people, though, uh, most entrepreneurs, when they say they take a risk, it's not an actual risk. They've calculated it out they've done maybe the pre-mortem they figured it out and they've um you know uh tim ferris has that fear setting exercise have you ever seen that on on youtube uh, i he didn't he talk about that on his ted uh, his ted oh, talk yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. so he talks about this fear setting exercise of listing out your fears oh, that's a good idea right and then and then after you've listed out the fear if this happened what would i do or what could i do in order to let's just say you take a risk right you wanted a Start a production company uh, making films, right? Making yeah. videos, which we're doing. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So let's just say hypothetically, there's a you know one percent chance it might not work. In that one percent chance, it doesn't go, it you know, doesn't go well. Maybe I don't. know. One percent chance I got ninety nine percent chance. But yeah, uh, this is, uh, yeah. So I, I'm putting it uh, high hopes on you. So one percent chance it doesn't work. Uh, whatever, you know, the worst case thing happens. The steel goes bankrupt. You get sued because you're. Quoting Mr. Beast, and Mr. Beast comes find you. I don't know, whatever, right? Something happens. What can you do in yeah. that scenario, right? You do the pre-mortem. You kind of okay. Here's a fear. How likely is this actually going to happen? Uh, what is the impact, right? Uh, you do kind of that risk, uh, you know, the risk mitigation that all PMs kind of do. what is uh, what is the likelihood this is going to happen? What is the impact? This is kind of what can I do to actually, you know, if this happened, what could I do to kind of get back? right? You still got the speaking gigs, you still got this amazing studio, you still got an amazing producer that's working with you. She is amazing. Right? So you've got all of these things still, right? So you could just build it back up and start another production company, right? Like it's like that, that fear, that risk is not actually what you have in your head, right? So sometimes I think we go into these things, maybe even these companies, they're asking about innovation and risk. They have this this idea in their head of, oh, this is going to definitely fail, or this has an 80% chance of failing. But if they actually sat down and actually looked at it realistically, Mm. right, and practicing maybe that tragic optimism, what is the likelihood this is actually going to happen, or uh, the results are going to be better, and what can I actually do to mitigate some of this stuff, right, if something bad actually happened, right? And when they actually lay out all of these things, they'll realize, hey, actually, there's like nothing quitting yeah. my job yeah. is not actually the worst thing right and trying even to going bankrupt
0: company. is not even that bad exactly
1: yeah yeah like everybody could could start again right yeah. they could just get that job at like yeah it's that status thing but yeah i mean you could pick up your feet right Yeah. everybody could pick up their feet afterwards i
0: just know i just know that uh i will building brand will always be a great backup anyways. Of course, So yeah. I can do basically what. That's great advice. I love that. I'm going to go yeah. back to Tim Ferriss' fear setting. And that's why we love having you on Dangerous Ideas. And I'm going to pitch you something. Sure. Uh, I want to do it on the camera just to get your confirmation. Okay, all right. Um, I would love to have you as a regular on this pod. I don't know how many, you know, every couple weeks, I would love to have you on this pod, you know, breaking down Dangerous Ideas. I know you're a busy guy, but I would love to have you because as a regular, because like I said, Dangerous Ideas per, you know, Per paragraph, per sentence. I mean, you have it. So you down to come regularly?
1: I'll, I'll do my best. My goal and is, my is to have you at
0: least five
1: times a year. Five times a year. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I, wow. The hesitation. The hesitation. No. Well, when I, well uh, I'm hesitating because I, I, I don't make it out to campus. I actually work remote all the time. So, but yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll do, it, do my best to make
0: okay, it. Okay. We'll, we'll try to make it easy. We'll, we'll bring a helicopter. If this
1: podcast is successful... <laughs> Okay?
0: (laughs) This episode episode is like the best one. No, it's going to be great. Well, I I really appreciate you coming on the pod. A pleasure. I appreciate you having me. Uh, Listen, dangerous ideas, rate, review, follow, subscribe, whatever you got to do. Wang Yip from The Dip. Thank you so much for coming out.
1: Thanks, Sean.